secondly, the hashtag for Twitter users. Um, the, this is being um, recorded, so you can see it again on podcast. Um, most important of all, the book, this book, uh, Pity the Billionaire, will be on sale uh, outside <coughs> for um, some while after the talk. Um, Thomas says that he will talk for roughly 20-25 minutes, followed by a free-flowing Q&A. So let me introduce Thomas. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Your um, Wikipedia entry describes you as a historian of culture, ideas, and politics. Um, Thomas grew up in the American Midwest, in Kansas to be exact, attended the University of Kansas, the University of Virginia, and got a PhD in history from the University of Chicago in 1994. Um, as a student, he was a young conservative. Um, and then something happened. Just what, I don't know. But the fact is that he then went on to write a series of books critical of the conservative movement, and now he writes books for a living and is also a columnist for Harper's Magazine and was, until fairly recently, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. His best-known book until this one was called What's the Matter with Kansas, uh, subtitled How Conservatives Won the Heart of America, published in 2004. Um, this book, Pity the Billionaire, advances the argument that in past episodes of hard times, notably the Great Depression, there was an upsurge of popular support for more state regulation of finance, more social insurance, more curtailments of free markets, because free markets had driven the hard times. In contrast, the hard times since 2008 have seen a historically unprecedented upsurge of popular support for get the government out, more free market, more deregulation, on the premise that, that government, not Wall Street, caused the hard times. And this is the point of the subtitle. The subtitle of the book is The Hard Times Swindle and the Unlikely Comeback of the right. As the book shows, the conservative movement in the last few years has been uh, brilliant at stoking up fear. And of all the many startling quotations in Pity the Billionaire, one of the most startling is from the opening pages of Newt Gingrich's book, uh, To Save America, published not in 1990 but in 2010. Remember, this is from the person who, for a long time, was number three in the American political hierarchy as Speaker of the House of Representatives. And in the opening pages of To Save America 2010, first of all, he equates the Obama administration with a, quote, secular hyphen socialist machine. And then he goes on to say, the secular socialist machine represents as great a threat to America as Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union once did. That's 2010. 
However, this book, although very critical of the conservative movement and the Tea Party, is anything but full of praise for the Obama government. In the last two chapters in particular, it exposes the Obama administration's dreadfully inept strategy for health care, for the bank bailouts, and for deficit spending. The, the main point is that the government, the Obama government, has simply vacated the philosophical or ideological ground to the conservatives, so that instead of promulgating a narrative explaining how the power of Wall Street money wrecked the regulatory regime, instead of explaining that, and also how the current US health system delivers rich profits to the providers and the insurers, but bad service to most of the sick, instead of doing all this, the administration has wheeled out experts to explain in dull technical detail why the benefit-cost ratio is positive. <clears throat> and at the same time, it showed itself as very anxious to conciliate, to, to compromise, to balance with the intransigent Republicans. And the Republicans, on the other hand, have obviously learnt some game theory because the game, game theory shows that when one side lets it be known that it is completely intransigent and the other lets it be known that it is decent and keen to conciliate and get everybody on side, then the former always wins. So the question then is why has the Obama administration, the Democratic Party, behaved so ineptly? Why have they given up the philosophical ground to the champions of a primitive free market ideology. A large part of the answer, so this book suggests, is the Democratic Party's dependence on funding from organizations, not just in Wall Street, which simply do not tolerate the expression of liberal philosophy. So this all leads to a very interesting question, which is how does this argument, in pity the billionaire, translate into a British and a European political context. Thomas. Thank you, Mr. Wade. Now, I'm not going to tell you how it translates into a, a British or European context. Y'all are going to have to figure that out yourself. And, uh, uh, and I, I'm also going to, I'm, you know, Sorry to say, I'm going to have to assume that you know a little bit at least about what, what goes on in America, you know, about all the awesome stuff that goes on there, because it's just, that's, there's just no other way around it, you know. Um, but so what, what Pity the Billionaire is about and what I'm here to talk about tonight is this sort of confused era that we're living through in, in America these days. It's a time when people are rising up against imaginary threats and rallying to economic theories that they understand in only the gauziest sort of terms. Uh, I'm going to talk about a country where fears of a radical takeover became epidemic over the last couple of years, even though radicals themselves had long since ceased to play any role in the nation's life. A country where ideological nightmares conjured up by uh, TV entertainers came to seem more vivid and more compelling than the contents of the news pages. But, you know, that's just my dumb liberal self-talking. If you, if you think about it from a different perspective, this is, in fact, a sort of miraculous time. It's another great awakening, even. 
It's a revival crusade in which the gospel is the old-time religion of the free market. This is the era of a grassroots rebellion and the incredible recovery of the American conservative movement from the gloomy depths of defeat. And let me confess that there is indeed something miraculous, something astonishing about this recovery, about all the events that have happened since the beginning of 2009. Okay, consider the barest facts. What's going on in America today, what's been going on for the last two years, is the fourth successful conservative uprising to happen in my lifetime. Each one of them, you know, all a puff with populist bluster, each one standing slightly rightward of its predecessor, and each one helping to compose another chapter in the historical period that I used to call the Great Backlash, that others call the Age of Reagan, or the Age of Greed, or the Conservative Ascendancy. That was a British journalist that called it that, or the, uh, the good old Washington Consensus, which is what the economists call it. Look, think about it this way, okay? It's been 32 years now since the supply-side revolution, as they used to call it, since the supply-side revolution conquered Washington, D.C., and since the free market faith became the dogma of both of the nation's ruling, I'm sorry, both of the nation's political parties, you know, the entire ruling class in the United States. And since then, we've lived through decades of deregulation and de-unionization and privatization and free trade agreements. I mean, the free market ideal has been projected into every corner of American life. Universities in the United States try to put themselves on a free market or on a market-based footing these days. So do hospitals. So do electric utilities and museums. So does the U.S. Post Office, the CIA, even the U.S. Army. And now, okay, after all of this has been going on for decades, we suddenly have a people's uprising demanding that we embrace the free market ideology, okay? And this only a short while after that self-same ideology led the world into the greatest economic catastrophe in memory. Yes, amazing is a good word for this situation. Unlikely would also be a good word for it. Preposterous would be even better. Okay, so here's the, the story. In 2008, the American financial system suffered an epic breakdown, largely the, re the result as nearly every serious observer, every serious journalist that has covered the financial crisis agrees that this is the result of our decades-long effort to roll back bank supervision and encourage financial experimentation. And the banks stumble, quickly plunged the United States and indeed the entire world into the worst recession since the 1930s. And yet, as I stand here and speak to you tonight, the main political response to these events back in the United States are a campaign to roll back regulation, to strip government employees of the right to organize, and to clamp down on federal spending. So let us give the rebels their due. Let's acknowledge that the conservative comeback of the last couple of years is indeed something unique in the history of American social movements. A mass conversion to free market theory as a response to hard times, okay? Before this current economic slump that we're in, I had never heard of a recession's victims developing a wholesale taste 
for Chicago school economics or a, a spontaneous hostility to the works of Franklin Roosevelt. Okay, that had never happened before. Before this recession, people who had been cheated by bankers never, as far as I know, took that occasion to demand that bankers be freed from red tape and the scrutiny of the law. Before 2000, and this is a joke, people. I'm, I'm making, these are, these are humorous remarks. But before 2009, the man in the bread line did not customarily weep for the man lounging on his yacht. Now, the political achievement of all this is even more remarkable when you remember for a second the prevailing opinion climate of 2008. Because after the disasters of the George W. Bush presidency had, you know, Iraq war, scandal after scandal in Congress and in the administration, after all these disasters had culminated in the catastrophe on Wall Street, the citizens of Beltway consensus land, which is where I live nowadays, Washington, D.C., where the consensus reigns and everybody's happy and real estate prices just go up and up and up forevermore. The people who live in Washington who are part of the consensus, all the, the sort of pundit class of America, after all these catastrophes had happened, these people all agreed on the direction in which the nation was traveling. They'd seen this movie before. They knew how it was supposed to go. The plates were shifting. Okay? Conservatism's decades-long reign was at an end, they said. An era of liberal activism was at hand. This was supposed to be the unambiguous mandate of history itself, as unmistakable as the gigantic crowds that gathered to hear Barack Obama speak as he traveled the campaign trail. You could no more defy this plot line, they thought, than you could write checks on an empty bank account. Now, the thinking behind all this was straightforward cause and effect stuff. The 2008 financial crisis had clearly discredited, or so they thought, clearly discredited the conservative movement's signature economic ideas. Scandal and incompetence had wrecked its ethical claims. And conservatism's taste for strident rhetoric was supposed to be uh, repugnant to this, you know, coming generation of post-partisan voters. Remember that particular fantasy? I always liked that one, the post-partisan voters. Besides, there was this you know, obvious historical analogy that you encountered everywhere you went in 2008. We had just been through a replay of the financial disaster of 1929, and now, murmured the pundits, the automatic left turn of 1932 was at hand, with the part of Franklin Roosevelt played by the newly elected Barack Obama. Now, the, the pundits also had a sort of script for the Republican Party, okay? They knew how, how, what, 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 what was supposed to happen to these guys as well. The Republicans, they thought, had to moderate themselves or else face a long period of irrelevance. So what the polite thinking world expected from the leaders of the American right was repentance. They assumed that conservatives would be humbled by the disasters that had befallen their champion, George W. Bush, that Republicans would immediately confess their errors and make haste for the political center. The world expected contrition, okay? And what the world got, of course, was precisely the opposite, and I mean delivered on the point of a bayonet. Instead of complying with the new speed limit, 
the strategists of the right hit the gas. Instead of seeking, that's the petrol to you, right? They, 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 you know, they made the car go faster instead of you know, getting all prudent and slowing it down and shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> My metaphors. So instead of seeking accommodation, the, the leaders of the Republican Party went on a quest for ideological purity. Instead of elevating their remaining centrists to positions of power, they purged those guys. And rather than acknowledge that they had enjoyed 30 years behind the wheel, they declared what, it, what had actually happened is that they had never really got their turn in the first place. The true believers had never actually been in charge, they said. This conservative ascendancy that the journalists talk about had never existed. And all the journalistic and historical work on the subject had been so much liberal propaganda and that therefore, and this is the most important part of all this, that the disastrous events of recent years cast no discredit on conservative ideas themselves, right? So the solution wasn't to reconsider deregulation, it was to double down, to work even more energetically for the laissez-faire utopia. Double down is when in a, in, it's in a gambling game when you double your bet, you see? Now, look. <clears throat> The social patterns of hard times are supposed to be a simple thing back in the United States. As impersonal and as mechanical as the forces that close down our factories and bid down the price of our stocks. Markets disintegrate, layoffs mount, foreclosures begin, and before you know it, the people are out in the streets screaming for blood. The idols of the past become the targets of our derision. We demand that the government do something about it, that they punish the perps, they rescue the victims, we demand insurance against further catastrophe, and we demand stricter supervision of the economy to make sure that it never happens again. Or at least so it was last time around in the 1930s. When the catastrophe comes, the Great Depression taught us, Certain legislative deeds will follow automatically in its wake. Unemployment insurance will be extended and extended again. There'll be massive investment in public works. Commissions will be named to investigate the causes of the crisis. Agencies will be set up to keep people from losing their houses to foreclosure. And as the economy falls apart, the assumption goes, Americans will also rediscover a certain neighborliness right? A sort of a sense of community and even of collectivism that comes from the experience of shared privation. And what's more, the people who are hurt by the downturn will start to take action themselves. You'll see uh, a lot of union organizing and a wave of strikes sweeping the country in response to the complete breakdown of capitalism's promise. And of course, people will protest you know, voicing their discontent in public places. And my favorite example of this from the 1930s is um, in, in the state of Iowa. The farmers got together uh, to, because they were, they were being ruined by low farm prices and also all their mortgages were underwater. Farmers are traditionally a debtor class in America. They borrow against their farms. And so they formed a, uh, what they called a, a farm holiday association. And they were gonna withhold their products from the market until prices went up. And of course, you know, it's a big country and there's millions and millions and millions of farmers and of course this didn't have a chance. 
And so things went from bad to worse, and bad to worse, and after a while they went on strike. So the farmers in Iowa and then in Nebraska were on strike, and they would surround the cities in Iowa and Nebraska, and when people would try to bring trucks into the cities loaded with farm goods, they would climb on the trucks and throw everything overboard. This is in 1932. And when, the, when journalists would come out from the big city to, uh, you know, to find out what was going on, the farmers would always compare what they were doing uh, to the Boston Tea Party, right? Dumping out, you know, destroying property. This is how our country was founded, they would say. And sure enough, in 2008 and 2009, at first it looked like this pattern, this hard time scenario that I'm describing was repeating itself. Our slump began with a sort of round of financial insanity that was very similar to what you saw in the 1920s. I mean, what's more, the bank's modern day misbehavior, I mean, it's no coincidence that their misbehavior began just as the old depression era banking rules were overturned or allowed to go unenforced. And just as in the awful days of 1932, average people are rising up again all across America, you know, in outrage fuming against the money men who drove the nation into a ditch and the politicians who stuck by their cronies while the rest of us lost our shirts. And sure enough, 30s-style populism has made a kind of triumphant return, you know, always claiming to juxtapose decent, average people against an uncaring and predatory world. But should you happen to hear an homage to the spirit of the Boston Tea Party nowadays, you know that the demands that follow are going to be precisely the opposite of what you heard from those striking farmers in Iowa in 1932. I mean, what makes the American rebels' blood boil today is not the plight of their indebted neighbor, but the possibility that such losers as they like to call them, might escape their predicament. That government might just step in and do the things those Iowa farmers wanted it to do 80 years ago. That seven lean years must follow seven fat years. Hell, that seems like a good deal to us nowadays. What burns our modern day populists is that anyone has the arrogance to think that human affairs might be arranged in any other way that government might just allow our neighbor to evade his part of the common disaster, that some mortgage remediation scheme might let him out of the hard times that he so clearly deserves. The ones moved to protest today are all liquidationists, as old Herbert Hoover used to call them. And what they want the world to understand is, to quote the words I saw printed on a sign at the very first Tea Party protest in 2009, your mortgage is not my problem. Okay, they're out there in the streets of America. I don't know if you've seen this on TV, waving signs that say things like that all the time. This happens constantly. Now, how did conservatism achieve this amazing reversal? How did they pull this off? Well, for one thing, by learning the lessons of the Great Depression. During times of economic collapse, they figured out, nobody loves a defender of orthodoxy or a self-appointed spokesman for society's rightful rulers. Turns out that's a really unpopular position to take. That's what they did last time around, and they learned their lesson. We'll go into that later. But when the collapse of 2008 and 2009 
came along. Conservatism in America immediately positioned itself as a protest movement for hard times, as a social uprising with all of your sort of standard outward signifiers, you know, people waving placards, people uh, protesting banks and big corporations, um, people yelling through bullhorns, people organizing boycotts. There were marches on Washington and big talk about strikes of the producer class. In fact, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, John Boehner, just a few months ago, said that this is why we're having hard times in America, is because the job creators of the country are on strike. And it, it, very interestingly for a Republican, he didn't immediately demand injunctions, right? He didn't want the National Guard to get out there and, and, and crack skulls. He's like, no, we've got to give in to their demands. We've got to give the, jo the striking job creators every last little goddamn thing that they want. <laughs> now, what's, what's more, this newest right that I'm describing cast itself as a people's movement with no leaders. They're this movement, they think of themselves as being so profoundly democratic, so virtuously rank and file, so very punk rock that they are actively against leaders. They're supposed to be this movement that is obsessed with betrayal, with being sold out by traditional politicians. And you see this going on right now with, you know, they, they don't want to embrace Mitt Romney. You know, they don't want a traditional politician. They're always trying to guard their authenticity, right? It's very precious to them. For example, uh, consider Glenn Beck. I don't know if you're aware of this guy over here in Britain, but he's this, he was this, uh, he was this American uh, radio host who, who got a TV show on Fox News in the early part of 2009 and immediately became this monster celebrity. And like he was on the cover of Time magazine and you know, it, it was his moment, 2009, 2010. He dealt in this sort of every day he had a new panic scenario. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be scared out of your wits. Every day he had a new reason why you, you needed to be really, really frightened. And, um, he was sort of, for me, the emblematic figure of, those, uh, of this revival that I'm talking about. And the emblematic figure of all of this confusion that I'm describing as well. I mean, where everything is turned upside down and all the symbols, the sort of historic symbols of the left are appropriated by the right. And he ritually claims to be a man beyond partisanship. Okay? He's, uh, uh, for example, deliberately imitated Martin Luther King's 1963 March on Washington. And at one point on TV, uh, he suggested that he might have voted for Hillary Clinton had she won the Democratic nomination for the presidency. Now, if you watched his program closely, and I spent a lot, a lot of time watching his TV show, um, which was really rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot. He's a, he's a, he's a fascinating man. He's a, he poses on TV as a kind of... Um, history professor. You know, he has a big chalkboard. I was going to say like this one here, but there isn't one. But he has a, he has a chalkboard and he's constantly giving history lessons. This is what he does. Uh, and it's, well, we can talk about that more, that, that later as well. But if you watch his show closely, you find that Beck constantly pilfers left-wing imagery and arguments. Uh, for example, he has this uh, critique of the public relations industry that comes it seems to come straight out of the pages of Noam Chomsky. Or uh, he has a, he very famously accused President Obama of being a racist, uh, which was you know, preposterous 
on one level, but it was also a kind of clumsy attempt to use this weapon that conservatives feel is always directed against they themselves. Now, the broader right, of course, glories to imagine themselves as the real victims of American society. Uh, For example, there's this sort of entire hagiography of persecution that surrounds the figure of um, Sarah Palin. Do you know who this is? She was the Republican Party's vice presidential candidate last time around. And, I mean, persecution is, this is what she's all about. This is her brand image. There's, you know, whenever I see her her smiling face come on TV, she she doesn't smile all that often, but when she does come on TV, you can always be almost completely sure that the next thing they're going to be talking about is how someone was mean to her, right? It's always, this is, this is just always what, you know, the one thing follows the other. Sarah Palin comes on TV, they start talking about uh, how someone was mean to her. And in fact, there's a biography of her that came out, what, two years ago, I think. It was called The Persecution of Sarah Palin, right? <laughs> That's her life story. I mean, the woman ran for the vice presidency of the United States by whining. That was what she was going to do. She was going to, anyhow. This is, this is not, but it's not just her. Of course, this is, this is, this is, this is all across the, the movement. And sometimes this, this kind of um, climate of, of fear of persecution can become very Baroque. Uh, Glenn Beck, again, wrote a novel in 2010 that was called The Overton Window. I'm sure you had him here to give one of these lectures. No. <laughs> <laughs> but if you read this novel, and it's actually kind of exciting, um, you'll find in the novel, conservative activists are imagined to be like the victims of everything that Big Brother can throw at them. I mean... They get tossed in jail on the flimsiest charges. They endure these savage beatings by police. Uh, the book's hero gets waterboarded after he signs up for the, you know, sort of patriotic resistance movement. This is all fictional, remember. And there, uh, there's, the, the book has this kind of fictional Tea Party movement. And when they have their meetings, they're broken up by police spies and agent provocators and that sort of thing. Uh, who are, I guess, the descendants of the real-life Red Squad that we used to have back in Chicago in the old days to throw people like my friends in jail. But (laughs) you have similar fears uh, all the time sort of sweeping across the larger uh, conservative movement. In 2009, for example, the populist right was swept by this sort of great fear, this sort of panic that the new democratic administration was building concentration camps for conservatives, okay? I doubt this fear made it all the way over to Britain, but just, just so you know, it turned out to not be true. <laughs> uh, as it, and I did a little research and discovered that neither federal nor state governments have ever mounted a campaign to criminalize the free market faith. <laughs> but I also discovered that they have used force over the years to break up strikes, and imprison labor organizers and keep minorities from voting and disrupt uh, Vietnam War protests. Today, though, it suits the resurgent right to imagine that they themselves are the real victims of this long history of state persecution, which no doubt helps to sort of enhance their aura as a dissident movement taking on a merciless establishment. Now, here's where I drink water. Now, I want to change subjects uh, slightly here because, you know, 
It's a lot of fun to poke holes in things that American conservatives uh, say. You know, these guys, look, I've spent years doing this now, like 10 years writing about these people, and it's a blast, right? They blow off the facts when they feel like it. They swipe their symbols from the other side. They uh, illustrate arguments on economics with fairy tales, and they really do. I mean, the reasoning you hear on their favorite radio programs is like, like something from a brainwashing session at Lubyanka Prison. I mean, it is preposterous. It is contemptible. But you know what it's better than? It is better than nothing. Okay? And before we go on, I want to recall one more time the original cataclysms whose memories today poison our every political moment back in America. By that I mean the financial crisis and the bailouts in 2008 and 2009. And I want you to remember that the culprits of those cataclysms I mean, the ones who wrecked our economy were not punished for what they did. They were rewarded. And when I say that, I don't mean they got away with a slap on the wrist. I mean they were laden down with billions an hour blessings. And today, they are rich in a way that you and I will never be able to understand. And all of this happened courtesy of my government, the officials of which have conducted themselves ever since as though nothing really untoward happened at all. The bailout money will be recouped, they tell us. Nothing to see here. Keep walking. Let the experts handle it. The experts know how to deal with these things. Now, I tell you, you could not have contrived a scenario better calculated to destroy public faith in American institutions. I mean, what is the point of hard work, of scrapping for a few dollars more at some lousy hourly wage when dishonest financial ledger demand is so profitable? Why play by the rules when they obviously don't apply to everybody? When louts and bullies and crooks take home society's greatest rewards? The bailouts created the perfect situation, the perfect environment for populism in the old Jacksonian tradition, for old-fashioned calamity howlers, as we used to call them in Kansas, for Jeremiah's raging against the corrupt and the powerful. And one of our two political factions back in the US took to this task immediately and with relish. I mean, they tossed inconvenient leaders overboard. George W. Bush, see ya, not a conservative anymore. He, was a, he betrayed our movement. He's, they just threw him out, as easy as that. They declared war on what they call the ruling class, by which they mean people like me. They assembled with megaphones out in the park and gave voice to the people's outrage. But the other faction in our politics, the actual political descendants of Andrew Jackson and William Jennings Bryan and Franklin Roosevelt, never really got it, failed to rise to this occasion. They did not seem to understand that circumstances called for something different. They could not embrace the requirements of the moment, even though responding to hard times was once their party's very reason for being. Uh, take the bailouts again. Look, there were a hundred ways that that situation could have been dealt with, each one of them less of an outrage than the way that was actually chosen by George W. Bush and Hank Paulson. But what did Barack Obama do upon taking office? Did he break with Paulson's campaign and lay plans to 
you know, reduce the power of Wall Street over the American economy? No, the opposite. He took pains to let the world know that he embraced the Paulson strategy. And each time adversity came over the succeeding years, the Obama team compromised in the direction of Wall Street, as though that was the party that needed to be mollified. Again and again and again, just a half an hour before coming over here today. I was reading about the, the Obama people have finally set up their own super PAC. And the, 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 the chieftain of his political campaign for 2012 went to Wall Street to raise money and had a meeting with a bunch of financiers. And of course, it leaked out. And in the meeting, evidently, he promised that Obama would not badmouth Wall Street this time around. It's off the table. There'll be no criticism of Wall Street in 2012. Newt Gingrich is even criticizing Wall Street, but Barack Obama won't do it. Even though that's the industry that made Mitt, Mitt Romney that you know, pays him 50 grand a day you know, for doing nothing. Nope, no criticism of that. Look, the folly of this strategy to Americans as economic actors, I mean, and this is, this is what we're talking about here is catastrophe, okay? That we, that we could not punish these people, we couldn't rearrange matters so that they, they're not able to do this again, we just propped them right back up and said, you know, go out and play in the street again, Wall Street. The economic folly of it should be plain to everyone by now that it might also lead to electoral disaster probably never even occurred to the president's you know, tough guy Chicago political advisors. I mean, after all, catering to Wall Street had only brought victories to Bill Clinton. Coming around to the way of the market had been regarded as high-minded stuff back in the 1990s, a sort of statesmanlike acknowledgement of the obvious validity of conservative economic ideas. Remember that cover of Time magazine in 1999 that had, what was it, the Committee to Save the World, right? Alan Greenspan, Robert Rubin, and Larry Summers, right? The, the, market, the free market faith was beyond ideology. This was something that was just, everyone with a brain knew in 1999 that that was the way you went. But look, the advent of hard times made all of that reasoning as obsolete as the floppy disk. Although Democrats never seemed to get it, the Great Recession had repolarized all the compass points. Nothing worked the way it used to. It was no longer about left versus right, not even on our sort of stunted scale in America. It was about special interests versus common interests. This was the moment for a second FDR, not Clinton too. So I live in Washington these days, and sometimes when I, you know, watch these guys, these Washington Democrats, go into action, my mind goes back to the tragically incompetent generals of the First World War, you know, ordering assault after gigantic assault, you know, blundering again and again and again, just seeing their armies annihilated one after another, but still they kept at it ordering up another round of the exact same goddamn thing, playing by the gentlemanly rules of combat, never doing anything remotely clever, right? Heaven forbid. And always completely surprised when the other side introduced them to 20th century warfare in some brutal new way. And sometimes I wonder what the world will look like 
when our new revitalized American right actually gets a chance to do what they say they want to do with the nation. I mean, maybe then the pundits will finally be proven right. And the, you know, the rightward drift of the last three decades will finally stop all of its own accord. You know, some occult hand of history will come down and, and change everything around. We won't have to lift a finger. And the nation will finally reverse course. But I think it's, what's far more likely is that as the nation clambers further down into the sulfurous pit called utopia, the thinking of our market-minded friends will just continue to evolve. And before long, they will, of course, have discovered that certain once uncontroversial arms of the state must be amputated immediately. What are interstate highways and national parks, they'll ask, but wasteful subsidies for leeches who ought to be paying their own way? What is disaster relief but a power grab by losers who can't get themselves out of the path of a hurricane? You know Social Security will have to go, of course, as the essential injustice of protecting the weak dawns on us all. I mean, why should society pay for the retirement of someone who hasn't been, you know, all responsible and collected Krugerrands like every AM radio host tells them they need to do, right? Krugerrands, God damn it. It's a gold coin from South Africa, you know? And every radio host, ah, oh, the hell with it. Look, every problem that the editorialists in America fret about today will get worse, of course. Inequality, global warming, financial bubbles, one after another after another, but it won't matter. Because on, America will go chasing the only ideology that the country has left, down into the seething Arcadia of all against all. Thank you very much. So there, there you have a very good foretaste of the book. It's written with a... In, in an extremely um, lively, readable, witty, uh, acerbic, um, and acute style um, in a way that academics um, normally don't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just before I open it up, I wonder if you could uh, just spend a, a minute or two elaborating on your point about the bailouts, because in the book you make a very interesting comparison between the bailouts under President Hoover and the bailouts under Franklin Roosevelt. Right. Um, and that contrast between Hoover using bailouts in a way that mobilized great public anger and Roosevelt using right. bailouts that mobilized uh, uh, public support, that contrast is very relevant to judging how the Obama administration has mishandled the situation. Right, that's right. And, and bailouts are... are, are extremely important in the, you know, in the political debate that's going on in America now, even though it's now, what, several years ago that, that they did them. They're still fighting about it today. The, uh, the auto bailouts are back in the, in the headlines I saw before I came over here this afternoon. But um, the bailouts are really the, uh, you know, this is the ace in the hole that the Tea Party movement has or that the, the you know, re the revitalized right or whatever you want to call it. Um, because they were, uh, what they did is, you know, the, the way they launched their movement was as a protest against bailouts, okay? 
the bailouts, we all know, were started by President Bush, who was a conservative, and, and his Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson. But it's been very easy for the, uh, and then, of course, they were embraced by Barack Obama in the noblest spirit of bipartisanship, <laughs> right? Uh, and he did everything exactly the way Bush and Paulson did it. And the, uh, the, the conservative movement, I mean, I guess uh, Obama thought, well, you know, this is all, you know, we're getting beyond partisanship here, and this is really statesmanlike of me, and all that kind of thing. It was incredibly easy for them to make this into a partisan issue. You know what they did? The, all the, they just said, "Well, George W. Bush, not a real conservative, not a real conservative, not part of our movement. He's out. We're against bailouts. Bailouts are a violation of free market principle. Therefore, if you want someone who's an uh, opponent of bailouts, it's us. It's the right. You know, and uh, this worked. That's all it took. That's all they had to do." And um, so, like the first um, Tea Party rally I went to, you know, I was furious about the bailouts. It was just inconceivable that these people would get off the hook. Uh, and uh, I went to the first Tea Party rally. I was writing for the Wall Street Journal at the time, and it was down in a, a park in Washington in February of 2009. And I was, you know, fully. I just wanted to make fun of these people. They were. I, I went down there, and and, and I, I recognized them. I knew who they were. This is all your your traditional D.C. you know conservative. Um, sort of leadership cadre, and here they are now pretending to be a, a grassroots, you know, protest group. That's, you know, anybody can see through that. But there was someone holding a sign that said, let the failures fail, with the AIG logo on it and the Citibank logo. And I was like, yeah, why not? Let, let those fuckers fail. I hate them, you know? <laughs> let, let, that's, that's a great idea. And, it, I mean, on reflection, it's not a, a great idea. That would, be, that would be disaster for the world economy. But they were speaking to that visceral outrage and nobody else was and nobody else has to this day. I mean, they've got that playing field all to themselves. And so uh, when I was writing this book, I kept running into that. You know, that is the, that is the right's uh, trump card. That, you know, this is what gives them credibility. This is what makes them, uh, you know, makes the whole thing seem reasonable and makes it seem like a real protest movement. And I decided to look into the history of bailouts. And I discovered, first of all, that not only have conservatives and like real, I mean, as, as close as you can come to a, a free market true believer, over the years have handed out bailouts all the time. Ronald Reagan bailed out Continental Illinois Bank. Um, and Herbert Hoover, as, as you were saying, uh, did bailouts all over the place. I mean, he was bailing with both hands. And, um, and uh, libertarian bank executives it took bailouts. You know, there's nobody, has, as far as I can tell, very few people have really, you know, hesitated uh, when you know when faced with the opportunity to get, you know, what like billions and billions of dollars to get themselves out of trouble and pay all their bonuses and that kind of thing. But uh, what surprised me was that we, when the there was a bailout debate in America while this was going on in 2008 and 2009, and there wasn't much to the debate because I mean people didn't have time. And there was no, no research done on this subject. And I was sort of surprised to find that, that there was a long history of bailouts because it had never been discussed when the debate was going on. And in the Hoover years, in the early years of the Depression, as I said, there were you know, bailouts all over the place. And they were extremely unpopular for the same reason that bailouts are unpopular in our own time, which is two things. First of all, they were, they were well, the, the main reason is that they were, just, it was massive cronyism. The head of Hoover's bailout agency actually quit the agency at one point, went back to Chicago, and uh, resumed the chairmanship of his bank and immediately demanded a bailout and got one, right? 
And this guy had been, by the way, Calvin Coolidge's vice president, okay? And it was like, you know, unbelievable. And the public was just screaming with outrage. And at the same time as this was going on, the school teachers of Chicago hadn't been paid for like two years or something, you know, something insane like that. And that's exactly what was happening in our own time, right? The people at the top were getting their bailouts. All the friends of the politicians were, were, were getting rescued, and average people were being ruined. And Roosevelt it did not, you know, in the, say, well, in the, in the you know, highest spirit of bipartisanship, I'll accept this strategy and go forward with it. Hell no. He was highly critical of it uh, and talked about it again and again and again on the campaign trail in 1932. And when he got into office, you know, of course, he, he beat Hoover in this landslide. And when he got into office, he, he continued the bailout agency. But here's the, really the thing that not a single pundit wrote about in 2008. He did the bailouts differently. He did all sorts of things differently. And it's just not that hard to imagine what you might do differently. For one thing, when you bail out a bank, you get rid of the management. You know, these guys screwed it up. You fired them. You know, you don't let them pay out bonuses. <laughs> you know, these, it's, 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 well, anyhow. He did that. They, you know, they, uh, they, uh, they, they had all kinds of salary caps. They wouldn't allow this outrageous compensation to go on. They would uh, put banks out of business. They were, it was basically, it was highly invasive. They would go into Wall Street banks and, you know, put them out of business. They would go into cities that were, uh, where the banks had all gone under, and instead of resuscitating them, they would start a new bank. The U.S. federal government would go into cities and start up a new bank, which is an amazing thing. Um, and they would also, they bailed out the economy from the bottom up. They would go to, like, small towns and bail out, you know, mom-and-pop SNLs and this kind of thing. And while they were doing all that, they were also breaking up the banks with the Glass-Steagall Act. They, were, uh, they started the Securities Exchange Commission to regulate Wall Street. And you see what all this adds up to. They were reconfiguring the economy so that Wall Street was no longer in charge. Okay? And this is, this is beyond imagining in America today that our government, that a, a democratically elected government could intervene in, 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 you know, in a way like this. It just seems, it seems inconceivable. And so instead you have, you know, the only debate about bailouts nowadays is do you want to do it 100 cents on the dollar, like AIG, you know, where all their counterparties get, get paid off and everybody gets a bonus? Or do you want to do it like Lehman Brothers, where they, nobody gets anything, you know, and it almost wrecks the world economy? That's our choice. And it's not much of a choice. And it's, of course, it's just politically uh, disastrous. It's toxic. And that's, if anything, well, that the, our failure to have that debate and our failure to understand that history is what's going to cost, or what has cost the Democrats ever since then. Is that, is that, am I, am I getting at it there? Why you want me to just, go, you want me to, to ask to say why more? Why don't you huh? just take questions? Okay, yeah, we'll do that. Oh, you take do you want me to do it? Okay, yeah. and I should mention to you that I'm, I'm, there's something wrong with me. I'm ailing, so if I faint, that's why, okay? Yes, over here. Thing. Oh, yeah, cool. Hi, I'm, I'm Miley. Good evening. Um, I just wanted to ask whether you agree that the central almost genius of the Republican Party... You're going to have to speak up. Um, ...that the central genius of the Republican Party, and to some extent the Conservatives here, is to essentially convert a market crisis, a market failure, into a crisis of government spending. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what's happened in America is we have the Ryan Plan in the Republican Party to eviscerate Social Security and Medicare. In this country, we have... You know, self-defeating austerity and the NHS reforms will open up to the market. Then, on the, other, on the other hand, you have this really kind of staggering false consciousness amongst the population. I don't know if people 
were as aghast as I was when there was this town hall meeting a few years ago, and you had two party two Tea Party retirees saying, "Get the government hands off my Medicare." It was yeah, absurd. that's right. Yeah, but <laughs> they, they seem to be line. convinced by their own religion almost. Yeah, and and you, you, that's exactly right. You've 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 hit it. This is one of the the main themes of Pity the Billionaire is how market failure becomes something else. Uh, and it, it, how the, the you know the Wall Street causes a disaster, and we are uh, and we're encouraged to lash out against Washington, against government, against regulators. Um, and one of the, the arguments that you'll actually see are these guys, uh, you know, these guys saying, well, you know, the regulators were asleep on the job, which they were. You know, they were deliberately hired because they're unusually sleepy people. You know, <laughs> but you'll you'll see people saying, well, the regulators were asleep at the job, so what we need to do is have no regulators. <laughs> and people sincerely make this argument. Um, you know, the, re the regulatory state has failed. Uh, you know, the, the, only real, the only real way to solve the problem is through, a, a, you know, a, a true free market system. And you often hear this phrase in America, a true free market system. We've got to get to a true free, you know, pure free market, real free market system. This kind of free market authenticity. This, um, that's not available if you have government in any form. And it is, it is a, an amazing feat that they've done. Uh, and that's really, that is the theme in miniature, I mean, of, of Pity the Billionaire, of how that, how that happened. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, you know, a hundred different ways that we can talk about it. But you mentioned the, um, you mentioned the debate over, over universal health insurance in America, which is, this is the moment when I really understood what, that the Democrats were, were screwing it up and why they were going to get so badly punished in the 2010 elections. And I was listening to one of the town hall meetings, like what you described. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about here? I'll set the scene for you. So the, uh, the, the president proposed universal health insurance, okay? A grand social insurance scheme in sort of Rooseveltian terms should have been an easy sale, you know, when, the, when you've had this incredible market failure. But, uh, and, and, you know, there's all these different proposals before Congress. And at one point during the debate, all the various members of Congress go back to their districts to talk to their constituents about it. And, and explain the different plans before them uh, to their constituents. And um, the conservatives managed to game these meetings. These meetings are it's called a town hall meeting when this happens. And so the constituent would sit up here on the stage, and, or I'm sorry, the, the legislator would sit up here on the stage and his constituents would be in the hall. And they managed to pack these meetings with, uh, with, with, with conservatives. And they would, they would typically get very angry and they would be screaming at the guy on the stage. And, I listened to a bunch of these on the radio and then went back and watched a bunch of them on YouTube and this kind of thing. And typically what you would see the, um, the audience demanding to know is they wanted to, always wanted to, to bring the debate back to first principles. They wanted to talk about liberty and freedom, you know, and they're afraid of tyrannical government. They're afraid of government tyranny, all this kind of thing. And the Democrat on the stage would typically, in fact, universally, I never saw anyone play it any other way, would only talk about, you know, this appeal to experts. Well, the experts tell us we need to do this, and the experts tell us we need to do that. They would never answer those questions. Like the idea that social insurance might increase human freedom was just like completely unavailable to them. You know, this is, this is a, a, an alien concept. You know, the whole Rooseveltian thing about freedom from want, they've never heard of that. Well, maybe they have, but... The, the, and this is the, the sort of great failure of the... Of the well, I was going to say American left, but there is no left, of the Democratic Party in America, is that while you've got, on the one hand, this amazing, uh, very cohesive ideology of the market, and I do mean cohesive. Have any of you guys read Ayn Rand? 
Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute, but this is, a, this is an ideology that sticks together very well, that is, can explain everything around you, that, uh, and that they've managed to make very convincing, even in a situation where it shouldn't be. And that is faced with this party that just says, well, the experts say we should do it differently. The experts say this other thing, you know? In that kind of a confrontation, who's going to win? I mean, it's not, it's not, even, it's, it's not even a good you know, ball game. It's, it's just a blowout. It's, it's dreadful. Okay, I'm stopping. I'm shutting up now. Yes, sir. They've got this microphone here. Just a couple of points. The, seems to me the um, Tea Party movement would never have got off the ground unless it had been backed by billionaires and yeah, media right. outlets like Fox News and so on. The, um, I think, from what you say, a lot of responsibility lies on Obama's shoulders. He seems to be, conservatives in general, love to attack their opponents, never explain anything, and left of center people love to make inspirational speeches about the New Jerusalem. About, well, maybe in this country. But, yes, but Barack Obama, he feels, it sounds so uncomfortable and unconvincing, trying to attack his opponents. Trying to what? Attack his opponents. I have never seen well, he just Obama. Said, he just said today, he swore that he wouldn't, right? Wall Street is off the table. They're not going to be part of the debate. He can't, he can't attack his opponent, you know, if he wants to raise money from them. I've never mm. seen a clearer, you know, he's, he said the rhetoric will not, he will not go there. Mm. I mean, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. And in, in this country, uh, Conservatives before the last election, every day they would be saying, this deficit, the bank, this crisis was completely caused by Gordon Brown. It's his deficit, it's his responsibility. And that's what people think today. Yeah. They don't think that's why the Conservatives are three points ahead in the opinion polls, because nobody blames. Yeah, nobody blames. that's right. It's well, Gordon the, Brown's fault, the, and the total opposite. The deficit it happens in the U.S. Yeah, the, that's the total opposite. No, that sounds really similar, actually. The deficit, the whole deficit thing. I mean, it was a complete red herring, and uh, and yet that's that's this huge issue in, in the United States. I mean, do you know what the uh, interest rate is on American government bonds right now? I mean, it's like it's like like the lowest. I think the lowest it's ever been, or something like that. You know, it's. Uh, does someone know? We're at the London School of Economics. Somebody must know. <laughs> <laughs> but. The, but the, uh, you know, there, there is no, uh, no the, the bond market is not panicking about an imminent U.S. government default, and yet this is the great issue, right? Everybody's really afraid about this, uh, to the point that the that the that the uh, the right was able to use it as a, you know, to have this this debt ceiling showdown last year, and actually wreck U.S. Uh, bond rating, you know, and something that the. Should he be tougher? Of course he should be tougher. What was the first thing that you said? Where did the Tea Party come from? That's actually a really uh, interesting question because it was, uh, it was uh, I went to that first one, like I said, and it was obvious to me that it was AstroTurf. Um, it was made up. It was ginned up by the usual suspects. I mean, I went to this park where they were having the, and I recognized people with the, with the bullhorns, right? There's the editor of Something Something Magazine. There's the guy from, 
you know, the think tank. There's somebody from the lobbying firm. A bunch of them had on name tags because they were there for this big political conference that was going on a couple of blocks away. It was obvious. <laughs> Joe the plumber was there. You know, you know who this guy is? The, he's the, uh, the right's, like, beloved pet proletarian, right? <laughs> and, they, and, uh, and, and it was obviously a fake. But the, and and that, that was, it, was, it was put up by, you know, uh, by the, the, the usual suspects. And you've got to remember, the, the American right is much better organized than their counterparts and much better funded, okay? And, um, and they come out of the business community also, which, which really helps. I mean, they know, they understand what their objectives are. They're very good at getting things done. And um, the, uh, but what happened is it caught on. This is the really creepy thing. Uh, it caught on. And yes, they had, it, it's not fair, you know, they had the megaphone of Fox News, they have their own dedicated TV network. Um, but by the end of, by the time, you know, after a year or so had elapsed, they were able to, they had like 100,000 people on the National Mall, you know, and not all of those people were brought there by, you know, some lobby firm in downtown D.C. It was a, it was a, you have to hand it to them, they, they, they successfully put it over, you know. Yeah, back there. Hi. I, I particularly liked your point where you said that uh, conservatives in America were willing to throw George Bush out as soon as they, he didn't fit the mold anymore. I thought it was uh, similarly interesting when they did the same and became the anti-war party in America um, over the last few debates. Which, um, wait, which war are they against? <laughs> Is it the, the Libya thing? I knew they were against Yeah, yeah. They, they're yeah. just non-interventionists now and they don't yeah. want to get involved in other countries' affairs, which, yeah. which I think is interesting. Um, but uh, so as of yesterday when the Senate, uh, which is controlled by the Democrats, supposedly, um, passed an anti-union bill for the FFA funding, or FAA funding, uh, I realized that there was no uh, progressive party in the United States. So I'm wondering, what is your opinion? Uh, what's it going to take to get another slate of candidates like Huey Long, uh, Colbert Olson, and FDR uh, in the United States? Oh. What is the FAA? Just explain the FAA. FAA, well, I didn't follow this debate. You're talking about the Federal Aviation Administration? Yeah, basically, what? there was a bill passed yesterday. Can you give him the microphone? And, and what it did was, uh, I think it like, was funding for the FAA, and uh, in reconciliation, the Republicans tagged on a bit at oh, the end. Oh, I remember now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, but it's a highly technical uh, a point, provision that nobody really outside of the labor movement understands. Well, basically, it's going to make it hard. It's going to make it impossible right. for them to organize. It makes it impossible yeah. to organize. Well, uh, look, I... Uh, I got started in all this stuff by getting uh, interested and involved with the, the labor movement back in the, the mid-1990s, and one of the first things that you discover is that it's essentially, or I mean, I should say de facto, illegal to form a union in the United States. It's, it's, it's so difficult that it, it might as well be against the law because, you, you know, the, all, the, the, uh, all management has to do is figure out who the ringleaders are and fire them. And there's, there is supposed to be recourse in law for that, but it's, it, the process takes so long and the punishment for management is so slight that there's no incentive for them not to do it, you know? So it's, it's become essentially uh, impossible. And here's the, the thing that just, that just drives me crazy is organized labor is basically, you know, that we always talk about the, Democrat, the Democrats are supposed to have this really awesome get-out-the-vote effort every four years, right? They're supposed to have this great ground game, as the pundits put it. And they, you know, they're, they're supposed to be the party of the working man, you know. And all of that revolves around labor. Labor gets out 
people to vote. They work really, really hard at this. And they are the Democratic Party's grassroots movement. And they did everything they could to get Obama elected. And I mean, because they've been staring death in the face for a long time now. And they wanted one thing. It was called the card check bill. It would have made it uh, much easier to form a union, you know, so that you could do it very quickly and management wouldn't have time to figure out who the ringleaders are and fire them. And uh, they didn't get it. Even though the Democrats at the time controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency and Obama said he was in favor of it and all that, they, they got nothing. They didn't even get a compromise. They got zero. You know, and then there's this incredible backlash against these guys, even though they, I mean, they aren't the ones that drove the economy off a cliff, but they're the ones in, in Wisconsin, you know, they're, they, they, they're stripping them of the uh, government employees in Wisconsin of the right to organize. Um, just did the same thing in uh, Ohio. They're trying to do something, oh, they just did do something like that in Indiana, all over the country. It's just like open season on these guys. Um, and it's, it's, I'm sorry, I'm still blabbing. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up in a second here. But it, there's, another, there's a slogan that the, uh, the conservatives have, and you, you'll understand how, how, what canny players these guys are when I tell you it's defund the left, okay? Defund the left. They, they understand that the way you play politics is not just by like, you know, beating a bill in Congress or something like that. You find out where your opponent's organizations are and you kill them. You destroy the organizations, the actual institutional basis of the other side. And you saw a bit of this the other day with this dispute over Planned Parenthood. Have you seen this? I mean, Planned Parenthood is under this incredible barrage of fire uh, because they're closely identified with the Democratic Party. Earlier you saw it with this, move, this uh, group called ACORN. Okay, and they, managed, they did successfully destroy ACORN. But organized labor has always been the prize that they really want. That's the, the, the thing they really want to kill. And so when they do things like what they're doing in Wisconsin, it's not just because employers hate to deal with organized labor. Of course they do. But it's also because organized labor works so hard for Democratic candidates. They just have to be uh, destroyed. And it, they've, had, they've been very successful at it. Yeah, you've been... You've, okay. They have killed organized labor already. Now they're going after the, uh, the actual municipalities um, because there just isn't money at the municipal level anymore. One question that I had was there seems to be a lot of identification that you've made, and it was picked up on by a couple of the questioners, with uh, President Obama as a person who must do something. In the absence of labor, which supports populism, when he was dealt a hand of, in fact, TARP had already passed both houses yeah. and gotten presidential sign-off, what exactly were your expectations for President Obama you know, there? And, and, and unless the Democrats can effectively rebuild the local, okay, you're getting an American question here, an informed American question, yeah. the local networks yeah. that, that they left behind and ceded to the Republicans in, in, during the Clinton years, you know, the Republicans were just very quietly taking control of school districts. Mm -hmm. They were doing grassroots politics. Yeah, that's right. You know, and this, so this all is, the yeah. semiotic criticism in the world, you know, in books that we write is, is not <laughs> going to make it right. Okay, <laughs> exactly. That's a really good point. Uh, I mean, but you asked like four different things there, so I'll start with the one that, that most appeals to me, okay? And that is that one of the, the great failings of the left in America is that our model for how to do politics comes out of academia. Okay, we think like, oh, well, I'll sit in the library and work on my dumb little book, 
you know, and I'll refute everybody else's dumb little book. And, you know, and, and, and then we'll, and I'll write something really clever about how stupid these guys are, you know. And then I'll, I'll go on TV and talk about it with Rachel Maddow or something like that. And all that's good, and I love to do that, and that's what I do, okay? But that's not how you build a movement. And the right understands that. They know how, they, they, you know, you, it, it takes movements to do these things. To get back to um, the, the labor movement. This is the old model for how you built a left was the organized labor in the 1930s. That's why, I mean, one of the reasons Franklin Roosevelt was a great president, one of the reasons Franklin Roosevelt did wonderful things is because he was pressured by outside groups, whether it's organized labor or whether you, somebody mentioned Huey Long, who is this, this kind of uh, quasi-demagogue but also quasi-genius politician from Louisiana, really peculiar man, but who built this huge national organization called Share Our Wealth. Okay, and he had millions of people signing up for this all over the country. And um, it frightened Franklin Roosevelt, and it moved him to the left. And there was another group, I forget his name, Francis Townsend, I think, uh, who uh, wanted old age pensions, and also signed up millions and millions of people. And this was what put Social Security on the, you know, made it a big issue in, in, in my country. And uh, without those movements, without things like that happening, you're not going to say, I mean, at the end of the day, you can't count on Barack Obama to be a good guy. You have to be able to pressure him from the outside. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's the only way you're going to see anything out of him, right? And now, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that, that, well, okay, that's where I should shut up. But <laughs> you see what I'm getting at. Yes, okay. Yes. I was just wondering if I could take you back to what you said about the failure of the left. You've just been talking about it, in fact, to think up something to go against this new conservative virility that we see. Um, what are the reasons why they've failed to think up anything? Is it that they are uh, in bed with the, with the interests of the money that makes them a powerful electoral machine? Or is it that there is no money left to do anything with government anymore, which is sort of the argument that's running on here? I'd like to talk about that. And also from a, from a sort of intellectual point of view, a what point of view? An intellectual point of view, okay. because that's that. your field. <laughs> are, all of the, are all of those arguments from the 1930s a little bit been there, done that? Yeah, but we're there again. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sorry, what was the first point you, 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 you said? Um, yeah, oh, why the Democrats' failure, the, but their, their failure of imagination. You know, there's complete lack of cleverness among the Democrats. And this is, a, this is a subject that vexes me every day. I live in Washington, D.C., which is the headquarters for the Democratic Party. Well, the headquarters for, for both parties. But um, it's especially a Democratic town. And it also happens to be the richest town in America. It's a very prosperous place. And it's, the Democratic Party is really a reflection of this sort of suburban culture of Washington, D.C. And these people look out at America and they don't, they don't see what the problem is. They don't really get it. Real estate prices have never tanked in Washington, D.C. There's no manufacture, there's never been any manufacturing in Washington, D.C., so there's no big layoffs or anything like that. Nothing like that is, is happening there. It's a very comfortable place. And I think that's, well, that, okay, that's the smallest part of it. Slightly bigger part of it is that the Democrats today understand themselves not as the party of working people, but as the party of the professional class. And they talk about this all the time. This is their great strategists in Washington write about this constantly. You know, we're the party of professionals. And the party, more importantly, the party of professionalism. So when they, and look, that's great. I'm glad that they've got professionals voting for the Democrats. That's fantastic. 
But the problem with that is that that's who they, who they really, who they are. You look at someone like Barack Obama, Harvard, University of Chicago. I mean, and then who does, who does he appoint to run his Democratic team? Of course, Larry Summers, the smartest man in America, right? The greatest expert. You know, it, it's always going back to experts, always falling back on the authority of expertise with these guys, never making an ideological argument. Of course, never making a class-based argument. Never, 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 never. But always making this, this appeal to expertise because that's who they are. And then lastly, the money. You know, the money. And uh, the, if you want to run a political, you know what a political campaign costs? President Obama spent a billion dollars running for the presidency last time around. And this time around, it'll cost more, a lot more. And we just changed the laws in our country so that corporations can give unlimited amounts of money to these, uh, these, these things called super PACs. You know, and you're already seeing this, like Mitt Romney burying Newt Gingrich with advertisements in Iowa and then doing it again in Florida, you know, spending him, outspending him five to one. But then Newt's got his own billionaire. Rick Santorum's got his own billionaire. You know, politicians are the pets of billionaires. And Barack Obama, I mean, I like him a lot. He's a great man. He really is very intelligent. He's a fantastic orator. I think he's the greatest, but he's part of this He's, he's part of this, this, uh, this world as well. In fact, he himself wrote about it. It's a passage that I quote in Pity the Billionaire. If you go back and look at his um, memoir, The Audacity of Hope, he describes fundraising when he's running for the Senate in Illinois and how he would go and try to raise money from um, people in the financial industry. And they would tend to be, you know, he describes their way of looking at the world. And this is, you, those of you who are Americans will recognize this immediately. They're very wealthy. They, uh, you know, they're really liberal on social issues. They really are committed in the culture wars, right? They really want to fight the culture wars. But they don't like labor unions. They, don't, they, they really love free trade. And what's the other one? It's like they don't, oh, they, they believe in markets. I mean, they believe in free markets almost as sort of fanatically as the Tea Party does. And that's who's supporting President Obama. And he says, as I, you know, got to know these people and they're very liberal and they're, you know, they're very much like me, I became more like them. And that's, that's totally accurate. That's what's happened to the Democratic Party. Now, I've got to let somebody else have a say. Is, yes, over there. Thanks. Um, I think there's, there's one basis that the, the right are entitled to feel justified that Bush let them down, and that was by increasing spending, and in particular the, the Medicare uh, drug prescription increase. Yeah. Um, and then my other question is, the state of the Democratic Party and, and the kind of remarks you've just been making about their leaders and supporters, I mean, given that these people are very largely the baby boomer generation, uh, Clinton being an obvious one, but, but many of them who grew up under the Vietnam spirit and so on. I mean, isn't this a massive indictment of that incredibly self-regarding generation? A what? A massively what? Indictment. An indictment of the baby boomer, oh. you know, think high-minded in theory, but, but in practice pretty selfish. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't like to talk about things in terms of generations. I'm sure that's right, but uh, I, 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 I'm, but, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, someone back here, there's a guy back here, he's had his hand up for a long time. Okay, so as an American now, I've heard your uh, really depressing diagnosis of the problem. Um, and it's a lot of things that we've all, I mean, as someone in America, we've all heard this before, and you said it in a really succinct, really uh, 
acerbic was the word he used, kind of why. Um, but I guess I'm still wondering, so what's the, is this reversible at all? Is there like a, is, is there it reversible? A, is, yeah, I mean, is there a way out? Is there a solution? Like, is there, is there like a prescription to turn this around? Or is it, is it, is the current system we're in, is it so broken? Is everything, is everyone so bought? Okay. Is the new Citizens United, right. like, but, decision? You can stop. The answer is no, it's no, not reversible. Anybody else? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thanks. I, I should, I should elaborate. That's a, you, you. Just let me interject for a minute. We should uh, wrap up in about five minutes in particular because um, there are book sales outside. And I think you're going to sign. I am. I am. Look, I brought a pen. I yeah. brought. Yeah. Just like George Bush, I sign everything with a Sharpie. The, look, I, I, uh, the, the, the answer is this. I, I, um, I am a very pessimistic person. You figured that out. And. Um, when I was growing up, you know, in that happy little New Deal world of the 60s and 70s, and, you know, in Kansas City, and we had manufacturing, and, and the rich people were not that far away from working class people, and, and it was, you know, that was America. That's who we were supposed to be, and that's, in fact, who we were. It was the great middle class society. And when I was growing up, and the same was, it was, it was here in the UK, we all thought that was permanent. We thought that was normal. And now I understand how historically contingent all of that was. That, that all of that was the result of a kind of political revolution that happened when my dad was a child. And it's coming apart before our eyes and has been coming apart for, for quite a while. And someone once told me that the, the, the correct way to look at it is that the New Deal was kind of an interregnum. Or, you know, it wasn't normal, it was an anomaly. It was the anomaly. Not the, you know, the, the, the sort of stable, middle-class, you know, universal society that we thought it was when we were growing up. It was a historical, you know, oddity. And we're now going back to the sort of baseline traditional America, which is 19th century, you know, robber barons, um, you know, Mitt Romney. <laughs> yeah. Um. You, you drew parallels between what's happening today, what's happening in the 1930s, uh, but you seem to avoid the obvious parallel of the rise of the right today and the rise of the right in the 1930s. In where? The Nazi party. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, one of the key similarities, I suppose, is the um, overt sale of complete fantasies in order to gain mass following. Okay. I, of course, I considered that when I, the, did, did y'all hear the question? The, I considered that um, scenario when I started writing the book. You know, are we entering some kind of fascist era? And I, I rejected that for a bunch of reasons. The main one being that the fascists never worship the market in the way that, that, our, that our American right-wingers do. I mean, um, they just never, they just never did that. And they, they never, you know, the, the main word of the American right is freedom. This is their word that they use at every, in all circumstances. And the, the fascists never did that. They also, the American right has never, has never developed like street gangs. Uh, you know, it doesn't have this, it, it never has, it, you know. And it's, they don't have this whole, you know, racial eliminationist theory, you know, despite what some people believe. They just don't do that. They don't talk that way. Um, and so I, I, I rejected that. I think it's, it's, it's bad enough without going to the fascist comparison. I asked you guys earlier if you've read Ayn Rand. Anybody read her? No, she's not a fascist. But she's a Nietzschean, okay? It's a cross of Nietzsche and the Chamber of Commerce. 
<laughs> you know, and it's 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 incredibly you know uh, sinister. It is it is a, it is sinister stuff. Her her system, and she is the a number one thinker for this movement. You go to Tea Party rallies, and they've got her picture on signs, and they're waving her picture in the air, and they're quoting her novels. You know, and they love her, and and it is a uh, you know. Uh, it, it, I, I don't want to say you should all go out and read Ayn Rand because the novel that they love is a thousand pages long and really bad, but <laughs> but uh, it's it's you know if you want to get an idea of the kind of social system that these people admire, uh, it's 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 pitiless. It's it's a uh, uh, you know it's. Uh, how would you put it? It's it, they do believe in a not a race of supermen, but a class of supermen, of of overmen, of of people who are better than us. Uh, you know, you know, they are humans and we are subhumans. And she she uses this phrase. These are the captains of industry. Captain, I'm sorry. Yes, billionaires. This is the 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 the, 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 the tycoon class in Ayn Rand's imagination is this sort of. Uh, you know, Superman cloud, like Nietzsche and Superman. And the rest of us, what, what's, what, what makes her appeal to the right is that she reverses all the sort of populist uh, imagery from the 1930s. So instead of workers building America, instead of workers being the salt of the earth, the ones who, you know, who produce everything, and management, I mean, or tycoons or billionaires or whatever you want to call them, being the parasites who, you know, are unproductive and live on our labor, it's the reverse. They're the ones that have produced everything through their incredible genius, and we, subhumans, are the are the parasites, you know, that 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 get by thanks to their incredible generosity, and the whole uh, the plot of Atlas Shrugged, which is her main novel, is that this class of of incredible genius billionaires goes on strike because they've had enough of government, they're they're sick of the bullshit from Washington. And they go on strike and they bring the economy to its knees. You know, it's like the most successful strike of all time. And, uh, and it's, uh, um, it's really dreadful. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. They've got microphones. Is this the last one? Yeah. Okay. okay. Last question. Well, I'll make it a very easy question for you then. All right. But it's got two, two parts. Uh, this well-funded organization that is the Republicans, um, you mentioned Robert Barnes, and there's, there's a lot of parts to it, but why can't they pick a good leader? And the Republicans? The, the, yeah, the up-and-coming bunch of the present uh, candidates aren't yeah. very impressive. They're no, they're not. Re I thought, really, really I thought poor. Romney was. Last time I saw him speak No, I think it's all falling apart maybe yeah. a little bit. Um, but he'd probably yeah, he's falling apart, you're right. Yeah, the yeah. best of a bad lot. Sort well, of here's a, an even the, scarier thought. I mean, Santorum's going to be wiped out after a while, but uh, he's going to come back four years from now. Yeah. That's, the really, that's the scary thing. Get ready for President Santorum. I don't know. It's Romney okay, maybe keep the, going. Romney, maybe the smartest guy in the dumb row. <laughs> the only thing I can think of. But, and the easy question is then, who is going to win the next election? Oh, that's, well, that's a good question. And I, I honestly don't know the answer, but I would say it depends on... Well, I know on you the, don't know for a fact. Yeah, well, we don't know, but it depends on the unemployment rate. But, uh, all, I mean, a fascin I mean, Newt Gingrich is also... I, I am fascinated with Gingrich. I, I, now it feels like I've been writing about Newt Gingrich all my life, you know? <laughs> I thought he was gone for good, but he's back. 
And uh, I'll just say one really, <laughs> one really funny thing about, about these guys. I, I don't know who's going to win. I think it depends on the unemployment rate. And we had a, we had a, I was on a panel discussion last night with a bunch of economists, and they're talking about incredible gloom and doom about Europe. And they're probably right about that, that, that Europe is, on, is about to go off the cliff. And when that happens, they'll take the rest of us down with them. And uh, they will. And uh, if that happens, then you can say hello to President Romney. I think that's the scenario, uh, is that the hard times will elect a, uh, a, a free market, you know, a venture capitalist. You know, and he'll give, he'll give all of us what he gave to, you know, that s steel mill that he bought in Kansas City where they fired everybody, you know, and all that kind of thing. Um, so that's my little um, ray of sunshine for y'all. <laughs> um, let me say one last thing. Have, uh, I know you guys haven't, I don't know if you've been following the American campaign or not, but Newt Gingrich has been running a TV commercial, or was running a TV commercial in South Carolina that was this savage attack on Romney's career as a venture capitalist. And I watched this thing. And I'm like, damn, that's awesome. It was like, it was all there. Like he, it was, it was an attack on Romney, not just from the left, but like from way to the left. And, and, uh, uh, and they had put a little fig leaf on it saying, well, we all love capitalism, but what Mitt Romney does is not capitalism. It's like, well, of course it is, you know, <laughs> duh. But if you put that aside, you know, you put this little fig leaf aside, and it's exactly what I've been talking about, these sort of extreme right appropriating this sort of language and imagery of the, of the historic left. And why not, right? The left isn't using it. <laughs> I mean, Obama just told us, essentially, today, they're not going to go there. Newt Gingrich has given us the, the, the farthest left critique that we're going to see in America. Newt fucking Gingrich. <laughs> Thank you for coming.